Welcome to the Chameleons Podcast. This episode was recorded in San Francisco, where I met with Dr. Eric Daimler, an esteemed AI expert with an extraordinary in-depth and broad knowledge of AI and decades of experience in the field. This conversation focuses on his journey in tech and AI, his passion for category theory and its implications for the future of AI, and a need for more inclusive conversations about how to define our goals and needs as these complex systems are being developed. The developments have tremendous implications for the tech itself, but my hope is that this episode will invite more people from education, policy, and research to participate in these important conversations that should concern us all. I am Imak Samrana, and this is The Chameleon's Podcast. I'm humble and delighted to introduce today's guest, Dr. Eric Daimler, CEO and co-founder of Connexus AI. Eric is an esteemed AI expert with decades of experience in the field as an entrepreneur, executive, investor, technologist, educator, and policy advisor. He has served under the Obama administration as a Presidential Innovation Fellow for AI and Robotics. And although his impressive list of merits is too long to elaborate on here, I would like to say that it truly reflects his incredible deep knowledge of AI and insights into the future of AI. The conversation will focus on his journey in tech and AI, his passion for category theory, and some uh, contemplations about different possible futures and uh, scenarios for AI. But let's see where the conversation goes. Uh, I'm just uh, so grateful that you took the time to sit down with me and agree to participate. Uh, Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It's good, it's good to be here. And I, I'm, I'm delighted that we're having this conversation in San Francisco. Thank you for hosting this interview. Happy coincidence. <laughs> yes. So I would like to start with an introduction of you, or perhaps you could introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your journey, your background, what sparked your interest early on. <laughs> you gave a very kind uh, and warm introduction, which I, I appreciate. <laughs> I, I guess the, uh, the nuance I could add to that is that what I've been told is uh, that I have a rare, if not unique, background in the technologies around AI in that I have been uh, working as a researcher in AI, uh, as an academic. Uh, I've also been an entrepreneur several times in and around these types of algorithms that are expressions of AI. Uh, and then I've been a venture capitalist uh, mm-hmm. investing in these technologies. And uh, then, as you, as you mentioned, I was in public policy. So uh, mm-hmm. there, there have been people that have done all of those things, but I have yet to meet, or have, as I've been told, have not yet, uh, unlikely to meet uh, anybody that, that has done all of them uh, at, the, at the levels I have. So I'm, I'm grateful for that set of experiences uh, around AI. Yes, and uh, it's a very diverse background. Actually, on my way over here, I thought about if you consider kind of your background as, uh, and all of the different roles that you have had in the field of AI, it's like you had um, experiences from different angles and understanding of how everything's connected, both for the development of AI, but also for how it's implemented. Do you think that this broad experience has given you an, a unique insight into how 
it all connects. So do you think you have gotten an understanding of how to best develop AI and enhance AI? I, I wouldn't uh, uh, be so um, uh, boastful as to think that I have the answer uh, <laughs> around around these. I, I, I do think that my uh, academic training and, and my time as a researcher in these technologies has been invaluable mm. in informing what effectiveness I've had in collaborating with others in these other roles. Mm. Uh, it certainly uh, <laughs> is, is critical in my current role, mm. uh, where I spend most of my time leading a generative AI spin out of MIT. Uh, it wouldn't be possible to be as effective in my current role had I not spent time fundamentally as a, as a researcher uh, in these technologies. But, you know, the technology has evolved for uh, the time I've been at it. I've been doing this 30-plus years, and what the definition has mm. meant itself has, has really morphed. Uh, you know, the, the current trend, not just in large language models and, and generative AI, uh, has become popular. The, the idea of artificial general intelligence, to mm. some extent, has meant something different, and AI has meant something different. Uh, over the years, which is all fine, you know, English changes and its mm. and its meaning and and people's interpretations of it. Uh, I I think that uh, we're all exploring what these technologies mean uh, and how they can uh, make our lives better, yeah. uh, how they can kind of improve the uh, the human experience, which is what interested in me in in these things uh, in the first place thirty plus uh, years ago. How mm. to uh, have computers. Uh, give us more freedom and uh, give us a better human expression. Mm. You were on a podcast, uh, I think it was called Humane Podcast, and you defined AI as a system that senses and uh, plans and acts, basically learning from experience, as you said. And that is a very helpful definition for someone like me and for others who are not kind of, uh, you know, technologists. But I was wondering, could you share a bit more about the different AI learning algorithms and framework frameworks that are being used today and what those involve? Sure. Mm. I, I really uh, came up with a way of defining AI mm. that uh, wouldn't be a way that I would describe it to fellow researchers mm. or fellow entrepreneurs, but instead it, mm. it came out of my time in Washington, D.C., where I would get these questions from members of Congress uh, that didn't really understand AI at the time. And you could be funny and argue that they still don't understand it, even despite my efforts <laughs> of, of having a good definition. And it, it, it's from that that I, I, I don't work terribly hard on coming up with the, uh, uh, the understanding for a layperson of the technically precise way of, of talking about it. So there, there are algorithms... Uh, the, like reinforcement learning is a is a current popular or uh, or or the algorithms that ultimately power what became the large language models invented in 2017. Those are probably less helpful for many mm. people uh, mm. when they conceptualize how these things work. The the definition that I came up with that you mentioned maybe just worth repeating, mm. which is the the conceptualization of these mm. learning algorithms as a system, mm. as something that can sense, plan, act, and then learn from the experience. So the, the story that I've uh, told that people often resonate with is in our daily experience, 
we've seen uh, autonomous cars, if, if not live, like we see going down the street every few minutes uh, outside this window here, uh, autonomous cars uh, coming upon a, a, a something in its view that may or may not be a, a crosswalk. And so the sensors on top of the car, it could be a LIDAR on top of the car, or, or, or in this room, it could be some air quality monitor. But the, the sensors on top of that car will, will come upon this image in its, in its view mm. and determine whether or not it's a crosswalk. Mm. Uh, it will bring that information into what is traditionally thought of as the learning algorithm or the, the, the planning part, uh, and then determine where to act. It, these are connected. It's a system. Is the is it a crosswalk? How confident am I of it being a crosswalk? Mm. Is there a person next to the crosswalk, or is that a tumbleweed? <laughs> uh, uh, and then, to, uh, should I? What actions should I take? Mm. Should I slow down? Should I stop? Mm. Uh, or should I just? keep on going mm. and not even alert the driver if there's a, a safety driver uh, in the car. And that's an action. And then critically, we are learning from the experience. Uh, and this is this is a, an, an issue that we don't need to get into and people don't necessarily need to understand how it's learning. You just understand the, the concept that it's learning that in the in the traditional way we think about it, in the way that I often find it to be useful, it's learning in that particular tight uh, domain. It's going to learn about the crosswalk. It's going to learn about the crosswalk on that particular block. It's going to learn about that crosswalk in that particular light pattern that exists at that time for that crosswalk on that block. It's not going to spontaneously learn Spanish or Norwegian, right? It's going to learn the crosswalk. That's why these cars will will loop around the block many, 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 many times to learn that area. And that's why we have autonomous cars here in San Francisco and only one other place that I know of in, in the United States right now in Arizona uh, because those cars have gone around the block so many times that they'll <laughs> learn those blocks and and slightly then learn a, a larger and larger area. So the mm. autonomous cars are here in San Francisco mm. in the city and only in the city. They <sighs> cannot go outside of the city. And even then, there are a set of streets that are blocked off to these cars. So I have I have driven I've had the privilege of driven driving with some of the the the, the, the engineering leadership of these companies yes. uh, in the car at the same time. And what we've discovered, or what I discovered, didn't <laughs> surprise them, but it surprised me, is there are a, a set of circumstances around these streets that still confuse the cars. If the car drives over and over. Uh, on a particular street and finds d difficulty in learning mm -hmm. that that right mm -hmm. sense plan act and learn from the experience mm -hmm. the easy engineering answer is just to block that street off and make <laughs> that street unavailable for the robotic taxi and that's that's what happens mm -hmm. at least in a few streets still yeah. uh, within the city of San Francisco so that's that's a that's a long story uh, wow. for explaining the definition of a working explanation of AI that people can use. It's sensing, planning, and then acting, and learning from that experience. Sense, yes. plan, act, and learn. That's, Repeatedly that's a, over and over and over again. Yeah, and what's different than, uh, uh, than, than we, what's different about this is it can do that trillions of times, kind of an incomprehensibly large number of times. Yes. And in that, a whole new world uh, evolves. Fascinating. And also interesting that if it's one street is too difficult to kind of learn from or take in uh, the data from, 
it's better to block it off rather than try to figure out how to navigate that street. You know, this is, yeah, actually, you bring up a really excellent point that can help inform many of the misconceptions around AI. Mm. Uh, For the last decade or so, uh, there have been uh, some people, some famous people, uh, declaring that autonomous cars will happen next year, Mm. (laughs) right? And and the the reason we get sucked into this, Mm. the reason many people keep thinking this is going to happen is because we see it happening now in large part. Mm. So the idea is that you can solve many of these problems around automation to, we'll just call it generically, 80% effectiveness. Mm. But then the last 20%, and then the last 5%, and then the last 1%, you know, the long tail of it, the edge cases, mm. take all the time. Mm. <laughs> this is going to be a general heuristic for a lot of yes. human problems or technology yes. problems as well. That we can have autonomous cars uh, on a clear day, bright light, mm dry pavement, clear lines, you know, marking a lane, that's easy. But there are a uh, a breathtakingly large amount of edge cases that that take a lot of engineering work. The robo-taxis have been sent down these roads over and over and over and solved many of these edge cases. Mm -hmm. But one problem in particular is when these cars experience steam vents, Mm -hmm. So steam coming out of manholes. Mm. That's confusing to the sensors. Mm. Another problem is uh, uh, roads with uh, uh, large inclines or declines. Like in San Francisco. Like in San Francisco. <laughs> Those can be confusing. Mm. Now you combine these problems mm. and you and, and it, uh, uh, it becomes a street that's blocked off. So a, mm. an example that I experienced was a, uh, a street that was very steep. We were going down mm. the street. Uh, uh, it was two lanes, one one going one way, one going the other direction, and in the middle were these slightly elevated lanes for streetcars. So we had uh, a slightly elevated left part of the car and a slightly elevated right part of the car, the curb, in between which we're supposed to be driving, mm. and we are driving down a steep hill. Add to that the barrier on our left side uh, had these... Uh, rubber pylons to pr- further protect mm. the bus, the the, the streetcar lane from the driving lane, mm. and then add to that some variability in the curb height uh, as as we went down uh, the street. Wow. The the car uh, during during my time in it uh, came to a complete stop, thinking that there was there was some obstacle it couldn't get around, <sighs> and the safety driver had to intervene. That was a combination of factors that it just hasn't been able to uh, to overcome. It, it's fascinating. If you think about it, uh, a lot of cities in the world, and especially these cities where you have the comp- tech companies developing these technologies, um, is already designed and created. And and uh, the cities are the, uh, the architecture and the whole uh, planning of the city is kind of already... Uh, there's a foundation there that you can't erase but in many parts of the world maybe there are um, areas or small small towns villages around the world where you have the opportunity to to start and plan uh, up-and-coming cities maybe that will be easier to implement uh, technologies such as automatic cars or absolutely Mm -hmm. and and we do this right now in 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 our world you know Mm -hmm. we have some 
in, in here in San Francisco, we have one, uh, uh, call it a trolley system or a subway system that has to have a clean right of way. Mm. Uh, we call it the BART system here in San Francisco. There's a similar one in Washington, D.C. in the United States where it has to have a clean uh, line. You cannot have any obstructions, which is different mm. than uh, some the, the New York train system mm. or subway system, which is different than the San Francisco street trolley system mm. that crosses over surface streets and interacts with cars. Mm. So we do this right now where yeah. these transportation, existing transportation mm. systems interact in different ways, interact or in the case of BART doesn't interact. Mm. Uh, mm. So autonomous cars are going to be the same way. Mm. There is a, a fully autonomous bus system right near the Orlando, Florida airport. It's in a, in a <laughs> little uh, uh, newly developed community where it's generally bright, generally clean, generally dry, mm. uh, and, uh, and newly constructed, to your point, right. where the roads are wide, they're clearly marked, a perfect framework for having a small bus uh, with no driver uh, being able to accommodate uh, some limited uh, navigation. That's absolutely uh, how this will begin to, to roll out, controlled environments. Yes. Perfect world. <laughs> but um, you have mentioned category theory and the importance of, or the potential of category theory uh, as a framework uh, in, for AI. I was wondering if you could provide some input and, 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 and share some thoughts about how we can use category theory to enhance AI uh, and AI systems. And um, yeah. If you have any examples, like specific examples. Mm. You know, the word category theory can often be intimidating for people. So to... to Maybe I'll, elaborate on that I'll, first. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, yes. I'll make the, the yeah. intellectual connection mm. between uh, what we're talking about with autonomous cars and yes. the, the, the potential uh, intimidating abstraction of, of category theory. As we're talking about with autonomous cars, you know, one way or another, we are going to have to introduce... A, uh, a a solid frame of reference for these these cars. It's either going to be in uh, a, a trillion mile test, mm. uh, a trillion kilometer test of <laughs> of these automobiles, buses, what have you, mm. uh, or it's going to need to be an infrastructure of clear lane markings, uh, sensors to guide the cars, uh, uh, or other uh, solid groundings around which these these systems can be uh, based mm. take that into a general sense around software mm. not just our hardware mm. and and we can say that we have these probabilistic models these stochastic models that have uh, uh, some failure rate that need to be matched to uh, what I'm going to call good old-fashioned AI symbolic AI deterministic uh, AI. It's in the combination of these two models that you can then run uh, life-critical mm. infrastructure. Mm. That that's that is the pairing that often people can call a, a hybrid AI mm. Uh, mm. Uh, or or some sort of blended AI. You know, one way or another to get to these life-critical systems, you're going to have to have symbols be represented. The classic way we've done that of representing symbols, mm. symbolic AI, deterministic mm. AI, ran into some computational uh, and mathematical roadblocks in the 80s that then 
led to an AI winter uh, before then uh, the machine learning uh, and probabilistic AI uh, took off in the, in the late 90s, 2000s, uh, and then turned into its subset of deep learning and, and, and neural networks and now uh, large language models. Uh, what has changed, mm. what's different, is that this abstract mathematics of category theory uh, mm. has emerged as a solution to the scaling of deterministic models, of symbolic models. So mm. the problem uh, in the past had been expert systems or symbolic AI, deterministic AI, hadn't been able to scale. Uh, as we started adding more of these uh, deterministic rules mm. for life, uh, cancer is this, this looks like cancer, and those were facts uh, we, we would get to a few billion, let alone a few d trillion data points, and the, the whole system would break down. The links between these would break down because you have this computational explosion mm. of links between, between facts. Category theory mm. as an abstract math solves that problem. And I don't mean kind of solves that problem. I mean it solves that problem. Wow. It scales deterministic uh, or symbolic AI. That is what category theory does as a math. What category theory is mm. uh, as a uh, is a is a math of math. Mm. It is an abstraction. We know what abstractions are as human mm. beings. We think of abstractions, mm. uh, you know, all the time. Uh, there is a uh, uh, there is the particular street that we that we are uh, uh, sitting on in in San Francisco, and then we can abstract that to the transportation infrastructure of San Francisco mm -hmm. and then the transportation infrastructure of the West Coast of, the, of North America. Those are abstractions. Mm -hmm. we, we know this intuitively. Mm -hmm. But how do we actually represent these in math so that machines can reason about them? Mm -hmm. That is enabled uh, with category theory. It's not really that mm -hmm. complex. And in some ways, it's actually simpler to learn than calculus. Mm -hmm. It's just the math that's more appropriate to the digital age. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's what allows... Uh, this branch of, ma of AI to scale. And it's in my view and the view of minis, many people that, uh, that this symbolic AI combined with probabilistic AI will be the, the road forward for most of our large complex systems. Hmm. It's just like a mix of bottom-up and top-down approaches, right? Like inductive and deductive. You could definitely say inductive and deductive. Yeah, I, would necess yeah. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say uh, top down or, or, no. or bottom bottom up. bottom mm. up because I don't know which is which in this yeah. case. Yes, exactly. But a, a bidirectional kind of approach between deduction and induction. You know, they, they, they're they're coming at the truth in different ways. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. <laughs> Could category theory be used for? language processing models uh, more specifically is that possible and and for instance in uh, with regard to chat gpt i know it's not uh, directly based on category theory but um but is it possible to leverage c category theory and enhance kind of the algorithms that we see that are currently being used in in chat gpt is that possible you know maybe Maybe helpful to uh, to talk about where these are these are useful and not useful. Yes, I guess. Right? Yes. So uh, uh, even though ChatGTP is called a language model, it doesn't necessarily need to stay in language. You mm. can substitute uh, 
uh, things other than English. I mean, mm. certainly it's done in other languages, uh, from Norwegian to Arabic, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, and that's that's fine. Mm. Uh, it it is worth mentioning that the nature of the large language models itself finds more difficulty with languages such as Arabic and Chinese and Russian. Those are just inherently uh, more difficult. And I don't mean more difficult in, in the sense that we can just apply more people to it or more thinking. It, it actually takes more computational power and not by a little bit, like mm. by a lot. It's how these algorithms work that when, they, uh, when they're breaking down the language mm. into its little constituent parts around, it, around which it then needs to reason, mm. the, 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 the language of, of, of Arabic or Russian mm. or Chinese or, mm. or, or many others of that, of that lineage, mm. um, and it require uh, sometimes in order of magnitude more computational power, therefore more, more energy, like mm. electrical power, mm. uh, to, to reason about them. That mm. I, I say all that as a background to say these technologies can be applied to other things other than those languages, mm. human languages, uh, such as for drug discovery. Uh, but they're still going to be probabilistic. That mm. means you're not going to want you to bet your life on them. No. You don't want to design an airplane with a large language model. No. right? You don't no. want to manage a power system with a large language model. You have no, you don't have a margin of error. You can't bet you on can't it with your life. No. Yeah. So how you get around that uh, is that you either need to train your large language model, not on English, not on Norwegian, not on Arabic, but you then, but you could train it on symbols. Mm. You could train it on math mm. instead of on human language, or you blend it with a symbolic rules engine mm. uh so that's what my company does we have mm. rules engines that are symbolic we're not the only ones you know other people have, have, have symbolic rules engines mm. but our symbolic rule engines are scaled with category theory and it's in that that we're a leader mm. uh one way or another you're going to have to have those symbols mm. you either you can have them in a rules engine like ours mm. or you can train a probabilistic model on the symbols uh and then then it's uh, uh you can get your foundational truth uh mm. that way but you have to do, really do one or the other mm. uh i i would feel very uncomfortable uh, uh, having many things designed, you know, designed by probability on top of probability, but get, you know, there's just some things mm. that can't be done that way. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're bringing a w airplane wing together with an airplane engine together with an airplane fuselage, uh, you, you just don't know whether the variable of vibration is additive or it cancels itself mm. out. Mm. Uh, 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 so what happens today is is people have a big margin of error, uh, and and that adds weight, it adds time, it adds complexity and expense. Uh, we 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 need to get away from that, if not just for speed, but also just for uh, agility. And that's where uh, uh, that's the general theme around mm -hmm. which people mm -hmm. will say that we need a blend of hybrid AI for most of these complex systems mm -hmm. uh, to. Uh, support the complexity that is, is is continues to increase. Yes, yes, and it's it's also fascinating <clears throat> how we probably need different frameworks for different problems. Is that what you're saying? Also, yeah, yeah. Think about whether your application is life critical. If it, uh, if okay, it's, okay, it's that simple. It's, yeah, it really <laughs> like, is. Really, yeah. And, and, and it, you know, maybe uh, one of our 
companies, customers is a, is a large transportation network. And in the particular application that we solved for them, it, the, the failures weren't necessarily life critical, but they were uh, meaningful. Failures were, mm. uh, or, or errors, or an error band is exactly what they were trying mm. to uh, uh, eliminate. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to know whether uh, uh, my my car is approximately uh, being delivered in the Atlantic Ocean. Like, I need to know exactly <laughs> where the ship is, yes. right? Yes. Uh, and so that's not, like, life critical, mm. Uh, mm. but it's important to get that right in a way that serving up digital advertising is not. It sounds like it takes more time to, to um, develop the frameworks you are using, the rule-based ones than the probabilistic oh, ones. Oh, it's a great it's a great question. It's a really great question. So this this really gets to our vision of where the world is going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's that you know, we we've seen this for a while, but it's uh it's one of the privileges I had about working in the US government where uh, I hadn't expected this, but uh, I got to see some of the largest AI deployments in the world, quite mm. literally. Uh, and it's through that that I was really got acquainted with where the limitations of these systems uh, would occur. These systems, you know, our systems, not just AI systems, but our systems, our power systems, our transportation systems, our supply chain, you know, mm. even before the COVID-induced uh, 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 supply chain um, uh, problems, uh, has been reaching its limit of human reasoning. One of my uh, partners t- talked about n- nuclear power plants being maybe one of the first systems we've had that exceeded our ability to reason about it. And so we had to have automated systems in there uh, right from the start because we can't, uh, we can't uh, in a principled way, reason about a nuclear power plant. We have to have automated systems mm. in there. Uh, and certainly we have computers now uh, solving a, a range of problems for us. Uh, designing semiconductors is, is something also that's obviously incomprehensible to us and unavailable uh, uh, without, without computers. But these sort of automated systems have, be, have become necessary to manage the complexity of our world. They've become so large that even humans touching parts of them without this concept called formality that I can get into that is represented in semiconductor design yeah. uh, is introduced. So where a, a human can't reason about these systems, an AI can. So what we do yeah. is we send the AI in to to discover the, the system. Instead of, as you say, have the humans construct the system, which will take forever, forever. we have the AI discover it. And then it happens in a snap. That's where the world goes. Ah, oh, that is incredible. Of course. You don't have to define it, the rules. Of course. What you have to do is you mm. have to define your own rules. Mm. You have to define your own worldview. So the the future is uh, towards all of us getting more specific about mm. what we want, about what our values are. You know, it, it's lovely sitting across a table mm. from other humans mm. and, and having a conversation to, uh, you know, discover something new, you know, besides just the, the, the pleasure of, 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 of human interaction. Uh, but in, in organizing systems, uh, what we need to do is take our own knowledge in our head and put that in a representation that ultimately a, hu- a, a, a machine 
can interpret. Yes. So we have a machine that can interpret it. That then gives an AI its ability to collectively view these different facts and come up with the commonalities between various interpretations around uh, a system. That eliminates the, the necessity of you know, five or 20 or 2,500 people trying to negotiate their interpretations yes. and the commonalities between them, which is you know, manifestly impossible. Yes, it is. And fascinating. But it would be interesting to know a bit how much of um, that you define or the humans define and when kind of the machine takes over, <laughs> if, if, it might, if you know what I mean. I do. You know, it's, it's an important part to, uh, to talk about. This will be a skill of the future. We, uh, uh, you know, we work with a large engineering uh, company that uh, has this problem today where uh, around the table we have a, uh, a civil engineer, a mechanical engineer, uh, a geologist, uh, that all have their views of a particular environment, a particular topology upon which uh, windmills need to be deployed. Mm. Uh, so they all have their own legitimate uh, concerns about the structure of the windmill, the maintenance of the windmill, uh, how a windmill farm needs to respect the environment under which it's under which it's placed. You know, for example, how how close is that windmill to the river? Uh, uh, and, and so, what, what is the nature of the the land that supports the the windmill? How does the the wind coming off the mountain next to the river affect the the the, the rate at which that windmill will be expected to be producing energy and and then uh, interact with the dynamics mm -hmm. of the windmill next to it right these are all these are engineering considerations uh, every every one of those disciplines from a geologist a mechanical engineer to a civil engineer they could all be representing their expertise their view of that environment mm -hmm. in the best way they know possible what happens today quite literally is they will have these representations in uh, some digital format, uh, hopefully it's not paper, but sometimes it is. <laughs> uh, you know, and sometimes in the digital format, as as simple as Excel, that's the the world still runs on on Microsoft Excel in in many ways. Uh, then they <laughs> yes. will then they will sit around a table and talk to get consensus. Often talking in English and Norwegian to reach consensus about how where their their models overlap. Uh, and you know, we all wish that the loudest voice wouldn't prevail, but often it can. Uh, uh, or that you know, the most the quietest person's views may be uh, insufficiently represented at the table. But that's how this works today. How much better would it be yeah. to be able to have all of those expert, uh, experts represent their knowledge in a way that could be interpreted by a machine and have the machine come up with the, the totality of the common understanding that's represented in those experts' knowledge. Mm. Yes. As long as um, the machines get the input that is important and like different perspectives and, or database on different perspectives, it would be able to organize it probably. So what, what category theory enables our platform to do is not only take in the totality of these models uh, at scale, mm. you know, pick a large number, mm. uh, uh, but it also can immediately, at the snap of a finger, detect if there are logical contradictions. 
how much better to do that uh, than waiting for some failure, potentially a <laughs> catastrophic one, to to emerge? And how much uh, even better, if we can imagine a future, yeah. how much better our world will be if we can provably demonstrate the integrity of a system before it's deployed. Yeah. It's it'll be faster to deploy, mm. obviously safer, yeah. uh, lighter cheaper for all of us mm. it'll just it's it's a it's a uh, remarkably better world that will exist uh as we deploy these systems uh of uh, of scaled ais uh more broadly yeah i'm also wondering is are there any um chances that the systems that are category based uh could be skewed like like with regard to getting representative data in the data that are used um, and that underlies the development of these solutions often comes from the societies where big tech companies are are situated. Uh, but we are kind of transferring these solutions into all societies. Uh, so I'm wondering if whether it, we need some strategies for uh, for making sure that there's like not data hegemony, that we get kind of a more democratic use of data. You know, well, you're asking some big questions. I know. Uh, and there, uh, there I'm are, trying to, but I'm not sure. But there, <laughs> yes. But, uh, mm. I can give you some mm. uh, directions that we will all, uh, as as citizens, need to be looking for mm. answers to these problems. And uh, maybe I'll start with uh, a part of that question that is often overlooked, and it's in the scarcity of data. You, you mentioned this a little mm. bit. Mm. Uh, we worked with one of our, our customers on understanding, just understanding the uh, the energy impact they had in the world. They just wanted to say, boy, where in our supply chain uh, do we have uh, uh, a problem that could, mm. that could be addressed? Where do we have leverage to address some of these problems and our energy impact in the world? And what, what we had found that they previously did not uh, understand was that they uh, were getting data from the uh, wealthier, more developed economies in the world. And that itself skewed the data uh, uh, in the reporting of their energy impact. Mm. You, just, you just had more data for what was going on in the United States, for example, mm. uh, uh, versus Uganda. Not to mm. pick on Uganda, but like mm. relative to the data in Uganda. Mm. And that, that would then uh, suggest something that may or may not be true mm. Uh, mm. about the energy impact of this companies' uh, efforts or interests in those uh, two countries. And again, I'm just mm. using those as uh, examples. Mm. Uh, but this could happen in, in anywhere. It could happen within a country in, in different geographies. And so we have to be really careful mm. about the conclusions uh, that are drawn. The, the general concept of garbage in, garbage out applies here. Be careful about from where you're getting the data. Now, mm. in symbolic AI, mm. you can know that the facts will be represented in the result, but it's still fair to say how are the facts collected. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our in our idea about the yeah. the airplane, it, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna compose this variable called vibration. The AI doesn't know whether that number was correct when it got input. Mm -hmm. It will know if that number logically contradicts in the data models 
other data models that are collected around the airplane. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you can expose failure points with with a much, much larger degree of certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can't say this is somehow now foolproof in that way. Mm. It, it's just a remarkable change uh, of the risk profile. Mm. Uh, and, and it's one that I would feel comfortable betting my life on uh, <laughs> more than <laughs> just guessing and overestimating, which is what happens today. Mm. You know, even NASA, uh, with, whom, with which we work, uh, says that they over-engineer their rockets because there are parts of their rockets they don't understand. And that adds weight, it adds time, and it adds costs for, for everybody that has to pay for these rockets. Mm. Uh, they want to get away from that 10-year cycle uh, of complex engineering. That's available through this hybrid AI approach of discovering these logical contradictions in design mm. Before deployment, which is what happens, mm, uh, yeah. happens today. So I'll give, I actually wow. give one more example about how this would happen and, a, and a, even a recommendation for uh, where regulation would need to take mm, yeah. place here. If we establish facts as facts, uh, you know, water represents a particular chemical compound to use something that is uh, uh, not controversial. Mm. <laughs> we, okay, we, we can represent that as a fact. And then we, we can use symbolic AI to guarantee the provenance and the lineage of that fact mm. as it migrates through whatever complex system we, mm. we have. That's only really available, or maybe not make too strong a claim, mm. the only system I know where that's available mm. is symbolic AI. Mm. And you might certainly map that with probabilistic AI de depending on your application. Mm. But w I will claim that the lineage and the provenance of facts could be something established by by regulation mm. uh, as being required for any number of different systems, whether it's engineered systems, complex systems, or uh, or the media, as we as we yeah. see, is so easily m manipulated. But, you know, me media are, are narratives that we that we consume. That's fascinating. So it's kind of context independent. That's that is a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. Because it's made the abstraction is on such a level that it would be the that truth will would survive through different uh, in different systems and or different parts of the system specifically. If what you're establishing is a fact that you never mm. want to be corrupted, mm. that is available through a system that uses a symbolic AI that is then scaled with an abstract mathematics of category theory. Wow, that's. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Oh, wow. Huh. I can give you an example of how that manifests now uh, in, in, large, in large systems uh, at, at scale. So the, we, have, we have one of our clients that's a, a, a large, uh, large company working in supply chain work. And, and so supply chain work, they have business intelligence questions. You know, where, where, are, where are my ships in the, in the world? Right? And, and really more specifically, where is this one container 
on which ship, in which ocean, right? Mm. And and some of them are so big. This this one in particular, mm. uh, I, I didn't realize how big the, some of these companies are, but they are they are really quite enormous. They have a, a client. They have ships themselves, but they also have a client mm. that has thousands of ships upon which are tens of thousands of containers, uh, and, and they want to know, you know, where are my sneakers? In which, <laughs> you know, which in which container? In which ship? In which in which company? Mm. Uh, you know, where where are they going to be? You know, that's a uh, that that's a various various levels uh, of abstraction. So that's a business intelligence question, mm. supply demand, what have mm. you. Those questions uh, uh, then rely on databases. Those databases mm. could be held in Oracle or SAP or mm. Salesforce or what have you. That itself is then stored on uh, some infrastructure, call it uh, Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or, or Microsoft Azure or maybe on-premises you know, somewhere in, in some data, uh, data center uh, that, that's owned by the company. So you have this stack from the business intelligence at the top, where, where are the sneakers? Just I need to know where the sneakers are. My client needs to know where the sneakers <laughs> are. That today, that question can often take a couple of days. If the client really wants to know exactly where the sneakers are, it can be like a four-day question. That's a little bit of the problem mm. they're trying to overcome, uh, which is how they came to us. That uh, uh, Then you have the, the, inf- the technology infrastructure below it, the databases and then the physical manifestation. Those parts are constantly undergoing modernization. Mm. Oracle 4 and Oracle 5 or whatever version they're on. Everybody knows Windows 11. Mm. Uh, and then maybe we're doing like a cloud migration. That's terminology mm. that many people are familiar with. So all these are going on at the same time. Mm. We got a cloud migration. We got an Oracle upgrade. We got an SAP <laughs> up, uh, uh, migration. Or they, SAP added a feature. All this is going on at the whole time. <laughs> Meanwhile, we can never allow the business intelligence questions, where are my sneakers, to, to be violated or to, to go offline. I, I, I'll be blind. You know, my company will be blind. My customers will be blind. They'll, they'll, they'll lose their trust in me. Mm. Uh, I can't do resource planning mm. if somehow I am blind to uh, where my customers' sneakers are, where my ships are. Mm. Uh, I need to do more advanced planning. And how it happens today, mm. you'll have a, literally a team of humans getting on a literal telephone, uh, calling literal other humans, uh, mm. sometimes interacting in Excel, mm. uh, but, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it, very rarely interacting in systems that, mm. that uh, uh, are, are integrated. That sort of complex system occurs in most large organizations. And that problem is only getting worse because the heterogeneity and complexity of these underlying technologies, uh, it, no one will argue, is somehow getting simpler. No. Uh, what, what the AI does is it guarantees the integrity of the connections between these systems and the business intelligence applications while the, the modernization is taking place. At, at infinite scale, at whatever scale uh, you'd like to wow. you'd, you'd like to present it with, and that that's that's the future. Mm. The AI discovers the commonalities and then establishes that integrity and guarantees that integrity under change. Wow, that's that's AI, and it's and beyond just, the human's yeah. ability to reason. Uh, and that's uh, that's just uh, sneakers they're talking about, but this can re- be applied to. F- probably anything windmills solar farms financial uh, systems uh, absolutely risk management is an application Mm. we have for a large Mm. financial services client Mm. uh uh, drug discovery Mm. security national like security so i've heard Mm. (laughs) i could could imagine knowing how things move and what's stable and what's uh, moving parts yeah Mm.
There are many things to admire about human cap uh, capabilities, and uh, we use them in so many amazing ways. We allow us to collaborate, uh, to solve problems, uh, change things for the better, um, for example, by developing technologies like uh, we're talking about now. And at the same time, we have many faults. <laughs> and um, the technologies that we are developing, and we talked a little about this earlier, reflects often reflects uh, the inequalities in access to resources, technological training, uh, opportunities to impact the data that is entered and used in the tools we have. I touched upon this a bit earlier, like we have a history of uh, Western privile privileged uh, hegemony, and, and, and with the accelerated development in tech, um, this could potentially accelerate as well. Do you see any specific ways we can ensure that history will not repeat itself? So I'm thinking about if you have any thoughts about like how we can ensure that we have a more democratic development of tech in the future. One of my uh, efforts when I worked in the federal government, uh, besides really my day-to-day -day job mm. of uh, working to speak humbly on behalf of the president, <laughs> uh, coordinating uh, the research uh, um, among my colleagues in the energy department, the defense department, or, or the state department, what have you, uh, was bringing people into the conversation uh, of AI. Uh, you know, I am really grateful for the traction that ChatGPT has uh, has had because it did what what uh, no amount of me uh, speaking to people uh, could produce, which is alerting the uh, breadth of humanity to to uh, how your jobs really are going to change uh, and how we need to develop our skills. And for that, I am really just eternally uh, grateful. But uh, there is. Uh, really no doubt in my mind uh, from the past, and this ha this is in a view of mine that has not changed, mm -hmm. that the degree to which this uh, uh, utopian vision uh, uh, of AI is fulfilled or some Hollywood dystopia is, mm -hmm. is, is, uh, uh, is closer to our future uh, depends on the degree to which we are involved in the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have uh, great answers uh, for... Uh, what you're what, what you're proposing uh, or what you're asking uh, for as as solutions, uh, and it would probably really be uh, not my place. Uh, uh, however brilliant I think I might be, and however right I might I might I might like to think my answers are going to be, it's it's instead uh, incumbent upon all of us to uh, establish these values. And I'll, I'll give you an example back to how we started this conversation with the autonomous cars. Uh, as as the car is is uh, driving down the street on its own uh, and sees this image that could be a a, a crosswalk with a with a person, mm -hmm. if the car is wrong, uh, who is liable? Uh, we have to establish liability, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. for in a legal sense, but like even in a moral sense. Uh, who's liable? Was it the driver? Was it the manufacturer? Uh, was it the programmer of the software? You know who 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 needs to be most careful. You know, Mercedes, uh, not to pick on them, has already established that their bias is towards the safety of the driver. Mm. Um, and in certain cases, that could be fine. Uh, if that's the decision of society, mm. then what is our reaction mm. to that? Well, how do we need to respond mm. uh, if that's the bias? Mm. Uh, you know, something we don't have, you noticed, mm. is we don't have any system telling us its confidence. The systems, just like ChatGPT, mm will act as if they are they they, they it is 100% confident really no matter what the question was yeah it doesn't say well i'm 
I'm I'm really confident of this answer that this movie was made in 2014. Like, mm. That's an easy one. Uh, but mm. I'm less confident that this is the best uh, restaurant that you could visit when you're in uh, uh, Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yes. I'm less comfortable. Yes. Right? You yeah. know, g- given your given the profile you gave me, I'll be coming mm. at this time and this time of season, and I don't even know whether it's over. Right? It's mm. it's less confident, and it doesn't mm. communicate that degree of confidence. No. So we as a society need to have that conversation. That I am super confident of that it'll depend on our involvement mm. and i am I, I i work it's why we're having this conversation it's mm. why i invest part of my time in having these conversations i want to get more people involved in in how we collectively want ai to affect our lives and that's that's the best answer i have yeah, I of how to answer. of how to of how to diminish mm. what will otherwise likely be an acceleration mm. of of a disequilibrium yeah. of the have and have nots uh, as this technology uh, manifests itself in the world. I think that's a great answer. And you touched upon it a bit, but um, with regards to human skill sets that we need for further development of AI, do you have any thoughts on how we should, how we need to think about with regards to talent develop, uh, recruitment and how we need to set up our educational systems in order to get the skill sets that we need? It could be like skill sets that are technological, but also otherwise more general skill sets uh, that we need in order to continue this tech journey that we're on <laughs> with exponential growth. <laughs> I, I really admire uh, the, the experimentation that, that's happening in uh, organizations like Minerva University uh, uh, and and uh, Louis Van Aan, who leads Duolingo, who's introduced mm. uh, ChatGPT as an augmentation uh, to their learning systems. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, Duolingo has done a fantastic introduction to uh, how that could take place uh, in education and how that could be leveraged uh, in in education. Uh, I, 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 I can't get away from mentioning my, my wife, who's chief learning officer of Udemy, uh, and her book on, on corporate culture uh, that dis- describes the degree uh, to which we can uh, put in operation many of the principles that we uh, think, around, think about around uh, organizational learning uh, and organizational culture. Uh, I think it points the way towards being very specific uh, about what we uh, want to have happen and what what represents our values uh, and desires. That's the skill set that ultimately needs to be uh, encouraged. You know, not to overemphasize the math part, but it's certainly something worth emphasizing that uh, uh, geometry, trigonometry, even calculus is a is a math that I think will become less important. Uh, it'll become a little bit more like Latin, mm. it, it intellectually interesting, but less mm. relevant for for many of the future uh, jobs that will emerge. Where you might say the more math, the better. But if I were to choose, I would say probability, statistics, and category mm. theory as as representative of the skills we'd want to have in the future. The ability to be very clear, moving from uh, these abstractions uh, of what we want uh, to become more specific can be represented maybe on this continuum from uh, uh, everyday casual speak to lawyer speak to engineer speak to machines. The, the idea is that we want to get our language more and more specific ultimately so that machines can interpret what we're saying. 
if if that can happen, that furthers collaboration. So mm-hmm. This is a this is the where I'm ultimately coming to. Mm-hmm. The uh, there's an argument to be made that our superpower collectively is our ability to collaborate, and the organization's power is its ability to coordinate among itself. So humans coordinating among humans in an organization has a certain uh, uh, power to it. It's our it, our ability and our skill set that's nurtured by these technologies uh, that helps us collaborate, I think, will be uh, where we will see a difference between jobs 20 years from now uh, uh, and jobs today. Yeah, uh, I think you're right uh, with regard to collaboration and you're seeing it already with all the uh, meetings of fields and the interdisciplinarity that we're see- uh, seeing now and uh, also cross um, sectors which is fascinating. I know this might be hard to answer. Is there any person that uh, or persons that you uh, met in your life and or you had in your life that uh, if you didn't have them or didn't meet them, you wouldn't have entered the field of mathematics and AI? So <laughs> if you were still Eric, but you lived under different circumstances, what parameters do you think were essential for how you ended up spending your time in this life uh i uh, I, am, I am eternally grateful for uh uh having chose my parents well i <laughs> i am very lucky i very yeah. very 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 lucky uh i, I uh, uh for the upbringing and fortunate circumstances that were that were given to me uh my my father uh in in particular was a trained engineer my mother's uh, uh an inspiration uh, and it's from that upbringing that it exposed me even to this uh, possibility uh, mm-hmm. to be to be pursued. And I had uh, the opportunity to uh, consider this uh, this intellectual path at a at a, very, at a shockingly young age. It sounds weird, but mm-hmm. uh, to to think about it um, to, in my head, mm-hmm. uh, but a shockingly young age. And it had had that those circumstances been uh, different in many ways, it could have been different. Uh, I, 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 rather, I, I think that set of circumstances combined, uh, you know, allowed and provided the, uh, the, the path that I'm on. And, uh, final question. So I understand they have inspired you a lot and probably, uh, contributed to, uh, the circumstances that, uh, gave you opportunities, uh, to develop the interests and skill sets that you have and, do you have any other uh, inspirational sources that you would like to mention? What are your biggest inspirations and inspirational sources in life? You know, I, I am just really grateful for uh, the, the the people around me, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that's where I try to draw my inspiration. I'm I'm grateful to be uh, in this place in this time, uh, and and with. Uh, with a, with a family that's inspiring, and and I, I hope to uh, set a good example for them, uh, and and my uh, partners both in academia and in and in business uh, to be uh, a, a a worthy contributor uh, and collaborator to to their efforts. Uh, I, I am grateful for my academic uh, advisors, uh, Jim Morris and, and Kathleen Carley, uh, who are who are both uh, uh, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, people and I have, I have good memories about uh, many of my past uh, business partners. Mm. Uh, uh, it, they've all, I think, contributed. I, I think uh, there was uh, there was one uh, uh, person in particular during the Obama administration, uh, Tom Khalil, uh, that had this 
that had this way of talking about the work that we did within the, the science advisory group more generally, which is that uh, we want to be uh, acting as dolphins, not sharks. And that was a nice uh, a framing, I think, of my experience uh, there, where uh, uh, it was certainly in, inside of what is, in other circumstances, maybe a harsh political environment, uh, a really wonderful one in, in my experience. And I, I hope to go back uh, and can and serve uh, in some some future point at some future administration and and in, uh, in 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 ever ever growing roles. Fantastic. And um, with that, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. And uh, we're way over time, but thank you, Eric. This has been a good time. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> glad glad we're able to do this, and and hopefully we'll get to continue to enjoy San Francisco during the time you're here. Thank you. Following the interview with Eric, I've talked more about how important it is for all of us to understand what the future directions in the field of AI actually involve, and also what exactly it is that underlies the data and tools that we all will eventually use. I'm extremely grateful for this introduction to category theory and the difference between probabilistic AI and symbolic AI. It has inspired me to further investigate the implications of AI systems as they become more complex. We are finding ourselves at a pivotal moment in history, where future opportunities might very well depend on the depth of knowledge we have about the technological constructions that our societies are built on. I, for one, want to know what the different algorithms mean conceptually, technologically, and in practice, so that I also can understand what they do not mean. I am your host, Imak Sambrana. Thank you for listening in.